Here is Edward Bear coming downstairs now. Bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. Now, you notice in that first verse, there's this rhythmic repetition of bump, 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 giving us this feeling of the stuffed bear being pulled down the stairs and his head hitting the stairs each time down. You notice that? And it seems like he doesn't have control over what's going on. He's being pulled down. Well, look at verse 2. It is, as far as he knows, the only way of coming downstairs. But sometimes he feels that there really is another way. If only he could stop bumping for a moment and think of it. Isn't that us? You know, verse 2 really speaks to our life in how we, we sometimes know there's a better way of doing things. We keep bumping our head and doing the same thing over and over. We come down the stairs the same way, but we know there must be another way of doing this. If only we could stop banging our heads in repetition to think of how to do it differently. Do you ever feel like that in life? Like there's got to be something else? Well, then in verse 3... Oh, okay, surprise, this isn't the Bible. This is Winnie the Pooh. How many of you already knew that? There's a few of you, okay. How many of you knew that wasn't the Bible? There's some hands not up, so if that's the case, uh, be very clear, that was not the Bible. Um, here's, what, here's what surprises do. Surprises work when you have a certain level of expectation for something. And then those expectations are not met. Example, you come in here to Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, often referred to locally as the Sunday night Bible study, and hence you expect to get a Bible study. I say open to Psalm 1, you open to Psalm 1. You expect a certain style of speaking from the Bible. You expect certain words. You expect this God-centric view. You expect... You expect that when I say 1 verse 1, it's going to read the exact same, if not very similar, to what your Bible says. There's a lot of expectations. But surprise when, wait a minute, Dr. Seuss? Or was that Charles Dickens? What, is, what in the Dickens is going on around here? Well, surprises are what happen when the expectation is not met. Now, these surprises can be pleasurable, or they can be painful. Example, you get home from work or from going to the store, but it's about dinner time, and you fully expect that when you open the door to your house, one, it's going to be your house, two, the furniture is going to be exactly where you left it, and three, the family or your spouse is going to be ready to eat dinner with you. You open the door, And instead, there are about two dozen people all screaming, happy birthday. And you say, whoa, you surprised me. Because it wasn't what you expected. That's a pleasurable surprise. A painful surprise can be, same thing, you're coming home from work or the store, and you know that the furniture should be where it's supposed to be. You know that your family or your spouse has got dinner ready and you're going to eat together. So you open the door and find... Your spouse has packed her things or his things, and they're not there. Dinner's not ready. Nobody's at the table to eat with you. Surprise, they left you. 
Sometimes surprises hurt, don't they? Sometimes surprises are fun. But what a surprise is, is when it breaks from expectation. We thrive. We thrive upon a series of patterns and plans. We need, it, we need some predictability in life. We need to know that when I do this, an expected outcome will come. That when I, sh- when I offer my hand to shake yours, outside of the coronavirus season, <laughs> when I offer my hand to shake yours, you're not going to take that as a violent attack and kick me in the face, right? I ex- there, we survive because there's certain levels of expectation. So we're not figuring everything out with a surprise. Well, don't do that again. I don't know what I did wrong, but I lost three teeth. So we thrive on some predictable patterns and plans, but surprises disrupt those predictable patterns and plans and says, nope, not anymore. And then we pull our hair out in anxiety because every, nothing's certain anymore. And we think, no, where is this going? I see the change. Maybe I like it. Maybe I don't. But I just want to understand. If it's going to change, fine. But let me understand the new rhythm, the new pattern, so that I can know what to expect. Because I need to know. We all ask this when a surprise happens, when a change happens, when disruption comes. We all need to know, where is this going? So that I know how to plan. So that I know how to behave and respond. Where is this going? So the Psalms as a whole want to answer that question. Where is this going? This is a very broad word. This. What is this? Where is this going? The Psalms don't answer that. Because every Psalm answers the word this with something different. Every psalm fits with something you're going through. When you say, where is this going? The psalm that matches with it says, this is where it's going. But even better is that all of the psalms put together give us the great answer to life. Where is life? Where is the world going? The psalms are not just a random collection of 150 poems penned mostly by David and others. Sometimes that's the impression we get because it doesn't seem like it has a story flow. It's just like, here's one, here's one, here's one. We can flip to my favorite over here. Your favorite's 20 over here. Your favorite's 100 over there. And there's a sense of you can really open up anywhere and read them. And that's true. You can. Every psalm stands by itself and does not rely upon the one before or after it. However, Imagine each of these songs and prayers, 150 of them. Imagine each of them as their own song, so you can enjoy each one on its own. Alexa, play Psalm 3. You're like, oh, I love that tune. Um, But also imagine that all of them are 150 harmonies and melodies all coming together to make one orchestral piece. That the entire book itself is a single song and has a single message. That's what we want to look at. So when our patterns and plans get disrupted, what do we do? Usually we say, ah, 
I need context. I need to understand. I need to make sense of this surprise, this thing that doesn't fit in my conception of the way the world should work or of what I planned or the patterns that I've gotten familiar with. I need context. I need a frame to look at this through. I need a hook to hang the coat on. So we begin to look. And so right now, we've got a lot of things that are disrupting the familiar patterns and plans of life. Let's just start with COVID. That's really disrupted everything. Whether we are sick or not, lost our jobs or not, it has affected everybody in some way, especially if you had run out of toilet paper in the early days. It has affected everybody in some way. Then you have riots starting, you know, a few, well, probably about a month ago now. Um, and we're, what is going on? This is different. And, and authorities are just letting people do this. This is definitely not the normal pattern of things that I've seen. And then you begin to wonder um, about the economy. Oh, no, the stock market's been plummeting. And then it rises back up. And then it's going back down again. And it feels like the worst roller coaster you've ever been on. And some people uh, are getting unemployment. And some people don't feel like they're going to make it. And the economy is worrisome. Yeah, businesses are opening back up, but are they going to make it? Where is all this going, right? We wonder, how is this going to end? How do I accept this change or develop new expectations? And then November's coming up, and we're going to have some wild elections, and we're going to have some wild reactions, and we're going to have some wild blaming. Can you imagine and then maybe your party wins, maybe your party doesn't. Oh, great. That's going to be another disruption, isn't it? For someone, for half the country, they're going to be sorely disrupted. So we, with the Psalter, ask, where is this going? And so to find some context, we usually turn to the news. They're the experts on what is going on. Hey, we, well, we chuckle, and our president pokes a lot of fun at the media, but we still look at it, don't we? How else do you know? I mean, at this point, what is your source? And so we try to figure it out. Here's the problem with news, especially cable news. The problem is that they thrive on creating problems and framing these problems in a plot in a plot. Did you know? Just watch it next time and think about this. The news thrives on creating a villain and a good guy. And usually, these days, your news is slanted toward a political side. And so your political side, we're the good guys, and the villain is the other guys. Or, more simply put, there's a murder. New York City, Fifth, Fifth Street Avenue. And it was, whoa, what happened? Okay. There's a bad guy, the murderer, and everybody else is the good guy. we got to find this guy, right? That's more of a unifying plot. But the news thrives on a plot structure. It thrives on creating conflict and tension and setting up good guys and bad guys. The problem with this is that plots do nothing but describe external events. Please don't miss this. All plots do, all the news does, is describe external events. Here's what's going on. Here's what you can see. 
It's all around us. And it may affect us, but it's all external. But then we turn to the Psalms, and we find something totally different. The Psalms, yes, recognize that there are external problems in the world. But the Psalms don't respond to the external problems with more external analysis. You hear me? Sometimes, like, what's going on? The news says, this is what's going on. See, the external problems. And they're like, and occasionally we get good editorials, and they're like, so this is what it means. But they're explaining how to solve the external problem with external solutions. The psalm doesn't do this. The psalms recognize, yep, there is definitely a problem out there. We want to know where is this going. But then the psalm goes one step further than the news. Because the psalm doesn't just reiterate a plot. Yep, there are bad guys. We're the good guys. Move on. Say hurrah. We're on the good side. Nope. The psalms go one step further. It goes from plot to story. From plot to story. What do I mean? Aren't they the same? No, they're not the same. Plot is the sequence of events, right? I stand up. I miss the ledge, I twist my ankle, you call the ambulance, I'm in a lot of pain, he fixes me, I'm good. That's a plot. It's a lot of external events. A story looks at these external events and responds to them internally. A story becomes, how does Brandon internally handle the humiliation? How does Brandon choose to or not to blame the creator of this platform for making it a little bit bigger than the average step and making me misjudge it? How does Brandon grow from this humiliating fall in front of everybody? That story. Story is an, is an internal response to an external problem. That's what the Psalms are. All 150 guide us through internal responses to the external world. And this is why we need the Psalms more than the news like never before. Where is this going? Well, MSNBC says, CNN says, Fox says, The New York Times says, The LA Times says, The Orange County Register says, The San Bernardino Sun says, so forth. They're just saying, see that external world? If these external people will get that external problem solved, we'll all externally be happy. But then the Psalms say, yeah, see the external problem? Turn inward and ask God to change your heart. Turn inward and ask God for understanding to hear you. Pour out your complaints to him. Unload your burden upon him. The Psalms say, for you, the response needs to be internal. And that's how we move through the world we're living in. Where is all this going? The Psalms want to, want to tell us. So let's look at where the Psalms say all of this is going. And I guarantee it's a different story than what the media is telling you. All right? So what is the story of the Psalms? You may know this already. But if you don't, you definitely want to pay attention to this. If you look at Psalm chapter 1, you will notice, now I believe some translations for some reason have chosen not to put this in there. It's a huge mistake. 
Most Bibles put right above Psalm 1, book 1. Do you see it? Can I have a show of hands? Who sees book 1 in their psalm? Okay, good. No shame if yours doesn't. Just get a new Bible. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just you want to make sure you take notes then because it doesn't matter if it's on your page. But as long as you know, this is what we need to see first. The Psalms are actually a collection of five books. Say that again. The Psalms are a collection of five books. Um, Okay, this is really cool because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he gave his law to Moses. That's a really summed up version of the first five books of the Bible. The first, how many? Five books of the Bible, where God is speaking and giving his revelation to Israel. So the Psalms then become this compilation of Israel's response to God's words. God has done all the speaking in the first five books. We get to do the speaking in these five books. That's cool. So the Psalms we see right off the bat are a response to the God who has spoken. They're an answer to him who has called us. So we're not getting his attention. He has our attention. This is our way to respond to him. So there's five books. Now, these five books are intentionally crafted. You might say, what? what? That's a weird concept. And it might be to you. Um, Sometimes I think we don't think about how the Bible came to be, and we just imagine David sat down and wrote Psalm 1, and then a week later he was inspired to write Psalm 2, and then after a glorious pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, he just, he felt Psalm 119 and the beauty of God's word. And and sometimes we just imagine like that kind of, yeah, okay, so here's how the Psalms worked. David wrote about 78, I think, 78 of them. That's a good chunk. That's nearly 50% of them. The other 50% are a bunch of other people, and some aren't even named. We don't have authors on them. These people wrote at different periods all over the spectrum. Some wrote in Babylonian captivity about 500 years before Jesus. Some were written around the time of David, which is about 1,000 years before Jesus. That's a 500-year span. And one is written by Moses, who predates David by about 500 years. We have about a 1,000-year span from the oldest psalm to the um, less oldest psalm. About a 1,000-year span. So over at some point, at most of the time, there wasn't a full collection of psalms. There were fragments of psalms. And when David was king, there's a bunch of David psalms and Asaph psalms and Korah psalms. And then later, Solomon adds one or two and so forth. So during the belief is, That while Israel is in Babylon, exiled from their homeland, they say, you know what? It's about time we collect all the Psalms we have and bind them up in a book. So they did. And they ordered them into five books. Now, they didn't just say, eh, let's make them all five equally the same weight. So that each of them has, uh, what would it be, five into 150? Is that 30? I'm still, don't ask me to do math when I, the microphone's in front of me and everyone's watching. I think like 30. So 30 in each book. My father-in-law, if he's watching, is probably laughing because he's really good at numbers. But anyways, um, they didn't do that at all. Books one and two, five, the bookends, have the majority of the books. And Psalm, or book three is the slimmest of the books. What's going on? Ah, we're starting to get a hint. There's an intentional 
arrangement going on here. So that's what I want us to look at. What is the Psalter, the whole 150, trying to tell us? Well, you begin in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not... Now, this is actually 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, or that's the Torah, the instruction, the teaching of Yahweh. And on his instruction, he meditates day and night. Then it gives us the glorious result. We'll see this next week, that he becomes like a fruitful tree planted by streams of water. It's an Edenic image of that tree that was perfectly life-giving and fruitful. Well, the one who meditates on God's law becomes that age-to-come kind of person. You're different than the present age. That's how the Psalter opens. It's, in, it's a gateway. It's saying, look, this is all about pondering, meditating, praying through these prayers. The second one, why do the nations rage, verse 1, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, or anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. But then God's in the heavens and he laughs and he says, ho, 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 but I already have my king. And then he gives him the earth the whole earth as his king's possession. So Psalm 1 is about the Torah. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, the, the, the king of Israel. Unnamed king, by the way, because yes, it might have been David when it was written, but one day there will be the king of all of Israel's kings, the Messiah. The Greek word for that is the Christ, whom we call Jesus. So the Psalms are already looking forward um, okay, and then it begins. So one and two are actually introductions, and book one, most people believe, actually properly starts in chapter three, Psalm three. And so here's how it starts. And I want to show you this because Psalm one, or book, <laughs> get this down. book one is the most turbulent of the Psalms, of the books. It is turbulent. It is what I'm calling the book of struggle. Book one is the book of struggle. And of its 40 one chapters. So 1 to 41 is book 1. Of its 41 chapters, 30 of them mention enemies. Book 1 is a turbulent ride, and David writes every single one of them except 10, 1, and 2. So David has the monopoly on book 1. David against his enemies. Book one is a book of struggle. So look at chapter three. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Well, that's not easy. Remember Absalom? He is the hot shot with long, luscious locks who decides that he's prettier than his father, more charismatic than his father, and more fit to rule than his father. So he gets the whole nation to follow him, and David has to bow before him and bow out of the city. Humiliating. This is part of the struggle that goes through book one of the Psalter. O Lord, verse one, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Oh my goodness, 
It's bad. But then it ends with verse 7. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. How hard? You break the teeth of the wicked. (laughs) The dentist just ood. (laughs) Now, that sounds gruesome, but what it's actually harping upon is it's uh, echoing toward Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the devil, will have enmity, struggle, war, battle with each other. Now, the good guys, the seed of Eve, they'll get their heel bruised. And oh yes, he's more than bruised. Lord, help me. But the serpent's offspring will get his head crushed. What's the image here? You strike them on the cheek and break their teeth. That's a crushed head. That's what it's saying. Is But in the end, we know where the struggle's going. We know who's going to win. So the first psalm of struggle helps us see the end. So book one is a lot of this stuff. Um, there's a moment in chapter 18. It's considered a Messiah psalm. It's where David suddenly seems to be delivered from his enemies. And in chapter 19, it's considered a Torah psalm. So remember how book one or chapter one and chapter two are a Torah Messiah combo? Well, here we have a Messiah Torah combo in 18 and 19. And that's significant, which maybe down the road we'll delve into more. But right after that, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, those five are considered kingship psalms. And so we're starting to see that David is going to emerge as the king. He is the Messiah. He is going to take the kingdom. Then um, we close book one with chapter 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, Yahweh delivers him. In verse 4, as for me, I said, Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. So it's like, it sounds like David's being slandered, gossiped about. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. (laughs) But even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, even he has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. That's book one. Isn't that great? You see struggle bookending it, and it's, it's, it's weaved throughout. So, book one gives way to book two. Book one, the struggle, David against his enemies. David will finally emerge the victor. And in book two, we see he's the victor. Because look who begins writing the Psalms in book two. Chapter 42, it says, the sons of Korah. Chapter 43 is technically part of 42. We just divided it at some point. 44, the sons of Korah. 45, um, the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, the sons of Korah open up book two. Who are the sons of Korah? 
The sons of Korah are musicians that David appointed when he became king. So what we see is David has now established his reign on the throne of Israel. That's what book two is going to look like. Now, the people who write um, book two, David has 20 of these psalms in book two. Korah has uh, 42 to 49. Asaph, another musician, has Psalm 50. And Solomon finishes the book in chapter 72 with his own psalm. So 42 to 72, that's book two, okay? So this is where the kingdom has been established. David's on the throne. Now, what happens in this book is there's a, there's a unique change in the language of the book. Suddenly, the book is now calling to the nations. In book one, David's talking about his enemies and God delivering him and crying out for help. Book two, there's invitation to the nations to come to the house of God or to praise God or to clap your hands, O you nations. Because suddenly, David on the throne, the kingdom wants to invite all the nations to be part of what God is doing. So, book one, struggle. Book two, invitation. Also, the language changes in the use of God's name. Now, you may notice that sometimes I will use the word Yahweh, right? That's God's personal name. He revealed it to Moses in Exodus 3. And in your Bible, the word Yahweh is there when you see Lord in all capital letters. That's Yahweh. But when you see the word God, capital G, lowercase od, God is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's very generic. It simply means ruler. Why the change in book two? Book two goes from Yahweh to Elohim. Why the change? Because Israel's calling to the nations. They're using their language. They're not trying to distance them with Yahweh says, they're trying to invite them, the God of the earth says, okay? So there's this invitation. Now listen to these stats. It's remarkable how much it changes in book two. Okay, in book one, Elohim, God, was used 48 times, and Yahweh was used 278 times. That's 85% Yahweh in book one. In book two, it completely flips. Elohim is used 85% and Yahweh is used 15% of the time. What in the world is going on? The name of Yahweh has been replaced with the name Elohim to such a degree it completely reverses book one. So book two is inviting the nations. Now, book two closes in chapter 72 with exactly this global image. So let's look at Psalm 72. It's from Solomon. And this is where we get this beautiful vision of where Messiah and his kingdom are going. Okay? It's going to be this global vision. So 72 verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. There's a prayer that the king, the Messiah, would be a good king. 
May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon, throughout all your generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. In other words, let peace continue past creation. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God, let your king rule the whole thing. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That, again, Genesis 3.15, the serpent will lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Doesn't this sound a lot like what Paul says is going to happen to Christ? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you see how it goes. And then in the end... um, Verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So book two closes, and the prayers of David are done. Not really, though. 58 of David's psalms are in books one and two. A mere 18 are going to be sprinkled in the rest. All that to show, two-thirds of David's psalms are in books one and two, the great bulk. So are they over? Yeah, for the most part but there's still a few more to come. But this is the key. The David Psalms to come are not speaking of the historical David. The David Psalms to come are speaking of the son of David who will rule on his throne forever, Jesus Christ. You'll see this come to light soon. Book three. Chapter 73 through 89. Book 3 is chapter 73 through 89. How many David Psalms are in book 3? Exactly one. So in book 1, he has 38. In book 2, he has 20. In book 3, he has one. (laughs) What happened? Well, what happened after Solomon? Solomon did all right, but his son split the kingdom in two, and both the kingdoms eventually went into idolatry, and that idolatry eventually led both of them to collapse and exile. Guess where where book three goes? Collapse and exile. It's a sad book, and I'll show you some examples. Chapter 74, verse 3. 74-3. God, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They, that's probably like their war banners. They've set them up in the temple. They were like those who swing axes in a forest, destroying everything. 
all its carved wood they broke down with hatches and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. (laughs) They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. That's a gruesome psalm. And then 79, Psalm 79, verse 1. Oh, God, the nations have come. We invited them. They came. But we turned away from you, so they didn't come in the way we hoped. Oh, God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And it's bad. It says they give the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. So dead Israelites are all over the place, and they're just letting the animals take them. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem when there was no one to bury them. This is a weird, twisted religion is what you're seeing. The bodies of Israelites have become the sacrifices to the beasts. Instead of pouring out the water and wine offerings on the altar, it's the blood of Israelites being poured out on the city. That's what's happened to the temple. Messed up, perverted, sick. And then book three ends with the lowest psalm in the entire book, Psalm 89. This is the end of book three. It starts off happy enough. major key starts off then it goes to a minor key so verse 1 89 1 i will sing of the steadfast love of yahweh forever with my mouth i will make known your faithfulness to all generations for i said steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness verse 3 very key you have said i have made a covenant That's a relational promise with my chosen one. That's the Messiah. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Remember that? 1 Samuel chapter 7. God promises to David, you will never lack a descendant to sit on your throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Nothing will destroy your kingdom. That's a good promise. So the chapter continues with the promise. Look at verse 27. I will make him, the Messiah, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And then look at verse 36. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. What a beautiful, great psalm, isn't it? God, you promised that David's descendants will never stop and the throne and the kingdom will go on forever. You've made a covenant with your chosen one. 
suddenly there's a big drop tuning and scary music comes in. Verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. Verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? The psalmist is calling God out as a liar. Psalm 89 is the bottom of the Psalter because this is the deepest doubt we find. Yes, the Psalms ask, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? And there's a lot of questions. But this Psalm comes not just to God, what are you doing? It says, God, you broke your promise. You shred the covenant right before our faces and rained its fragments on us and laughed as you danced over our temple. This is the book of doubt. There was struggle in book one. Finally, victory. And there's invitation in book two for the nations to come and celebrate this God. But Israel gets lured away by the nations. And in book three, there's severe doubt because they're now in exile. God has seemingly abandoned them, destroyed everything. The temple's in ruins. It's a sad picture. And how many David Psalms are there? Remember, just one. There's no hope. There's no Messiah. There's no throne, no crown, no kingdom. But book four is in chapter 90. And it goes all the way to chapter 106. 90 to 106, book four. And look who kicks off book four. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, why would Moses be starting book four. Well, you may remember that Moses was the one who led Israel out of their bondage in Egypt and led them to their promised land where eventually they would build the kingdom and David would rise up and lead and a promise that there would always be a Messiah ruling the kingdom was made. But now that's been broken. So why Moses? Because this is the Psalter's hope that God will one day bring a new Moses to lead us out of a new bondage in a new exodus. And Jesus is precisely that. That's why Matthew opens his book with Jesus trying to be killed like Moses was trying to, was the king of Egypt tried to kill Moses. So the king of Israel tried to kill Jesus. Jesus had to flee into Egypt and then come out of Egypt, just like Moses had to come out of Egypt. Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized, just like Joshua, the successor of Moses, led the Israelites through the Jordan River to the Promised Land. Jesus is leading us through the Promised Land. Moses was 40 years in the wilderness where the people were tested by God. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness where he was tested by the devil. Jesus climbs a mountain to deliver the words of God to Israel below and his 12 tribes or disciples around him. 
Moses climbed the mountain to give the law of God to the 12 tribes below. See, the book of Matthew echoes the Exodus story because Jesus is the new Moses. Book 4 says, wait, wait, Psalm 89 is not the end of the book, and they all lived horribly ever after. No, there's a Moses that's going to deliver us. And so book 4 is the book of reorientation. Book one was struggle, book two is invitation, book three was doubt, but book four is reorientation. And here's how it reorients us. David kind of comes back. Remember book three had one David psalm? How many David psalms are in book four? Two. It's hope. It's hope. But you know why? Because in book four, there is a severe emphasis on a different king. Look with me at Psalm 93. Yahweh reigns. He is robed in majesty. See that? Psalm 93, one? Yahweh reigns. 94. Verse 1. O Yahweh, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Who's the judge of the earth? Who's the king of the earth? Psalm 95, look at verse 3. 95, 3. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. 97, verse 1. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. 98, verse 6. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make joyful noise before the king, Yahweh. 99, verse 1. Yahweh reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Let the earth quake. Is that not cool or what? Israel is without their kingdom. They're in exile. So what do they do in exile? God reorients them around his kingship. Psalm 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. These seven psalms all emphasize Yahweh is the king. You had your eyes on the wrong person. Psalm, uh, book chapter 4, closes like this. Psalm 106 is the last psalm of book 4. And look at it. 106, verse 47. There's a prayer, and this prayer is significant because book 5 is going to answer it. So book 4 ends, 106, 47, with this prayer. Save us, O Yahweh our God, and God. Gather us from among the nations. What's that prayer? Like the Moses in Psalm 90, please gather us from the nations, bring us back home. That's the prayer. Book five, the last book, opens in Psalm 107, and look how it starts. Chapter 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed, those who have been purchased out of slavery, 
Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Do you see that in verse 3? It is a direct answer to the prayer at the end of book 4. Oh, please gather us from among the nations. Book 5 opens with, you have gathered us from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. It's happened. Book 5 is therefore the book of hallelujah. It's the book of praise. Because look, it all began with David, the chosen, the Messiah, struggling against the seed of the serpent, against his enemies, finally prevailing. And in book two, he's king and the nations are invited, but the Israelites follow the ways of the nations instead. So in book three, they are kicked out of their land and we see them mourn and and blame it on God because they're still reckoning with what had happened. So it's the book of doubt. But then book four says, wait, In the midst of our darkest hour, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of where is this going? Book four says, reorient your vision on Yahweh as the king of the earth. That will put us back on track. The train has been derailed. Here's how we get it back. And now that our eyes are upon you, O our king, please restore us. Book five opens with the promise of, yep, you're going to be restored. What a promise. It's going to happen. Okay. So how many Davids show up in book five? Fifteen. A dramatic return. Three in books three to four. Three times that by five and you have book five. So 107, you are gathering us. So How's that going to happen? That's the question, right? How are you going to restore the kingdom? Chapter 108, 109, and 110 give us the answer. 108, a song, a psalm of David. 109, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And 110, a psalm of David. Not just any David psalm, but read 110. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who quotes that psalm? Jesus. When he's talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and they're grilling him with questions, well, if someone goes through seven wives, who will he be married to in the resurrection? What's the greatest commandment? Blah, blah, blah. They're testing him the whole time. And then Jesus says, I have a question for you. When David said, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, who was he talking to? And they were dumbfounded because Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. Here's what, if you don't get it, here's what's going on. David is saying, Yahweh says to my Lord, who is David's Lord? If he's king, who's David's Lord? David recognized that there was a Messiah greater than him to come. And that's what Jesus was telling them. I am David's master. Yahweh told him. So Jesus is the one who's going to sit at his right hand. As Ephesians 2 tells us, he sits at the right hand. Hebrews tells us he sits at the right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's how the restoration is going to happen. Here's how the regathering. This is where the story is going. The new David will arrive. 
and he will bring it all together. So, how do we respond to this? Psalm 111 starts with, Praise Yahweh, which I think you know, directly translated from the Hebrew is simply hallelujah. Psalm 111 says, David, the new David, David's Lord is coming. Hallelujah. 112, hallelujah. See that in verse 1? Hallelujah. Look at 113, hallelujah. And it ends with hallelujah. There's an eruption of praise about this announcement. Now, 113 to 118. Those psalms are called the Exodus Psalms. They were sung in celebration of their deliverance from Egypt. And they would sing them during the festival of Passover. Passover was one of the seasons, one of the festivals in which everybody would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So what's happening? We're seeing they're fleeing their captivity. They're coming to Jerusalem. It's Passover. Then... Um, 119. So 113, 118, the Psalms of Passover. 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is 176 glorious verses, all about the Torah, God's word. What comes after Passover? It's the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is also known more in the church as Pentecost. Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, was when they recognized the giving of the law from Mount Sinai to Israel. So what does Psalm 119 celebrate? The Feast of Weeks, the giving of God's glorious law, 176 ways of thanking him for it, praising him for it. So we have Passover. 50 days later is the Feast of Weeks, the very next chapter. So guess what should come after Psalm 119? In 120, you should have the next festival. And that was the Feast of Booths. So that's the third one which they would gather in Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths was in the harvest season, or the fall season, and they would all come and pitch their tents around the temple for a whole week of celebration. Isn't this beautiful? So right after this promise of the new David's going to come and deliver us, there are the three Jerusalem festivals because it's calling us home. The Exodus Psalms or the Passover Psalms, the, the Feast of Weeks Psalm, and then 120, the, the Tabernacle, the Booth Psalms. And you already know what Psalm 120 is part of, because it's part of a collection of 15 Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. And so here we went through those in detail, the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Okay, and that ends in 134, like we did last week. Psalm 134, the Psalms of Ascend end 135 what's the proper response you should know by now how to respond in book five hallelujah 136 is a psalm which repetitively praises god for his hesed it says his steadfast love endures forever over and over and over to call and response when god did this his steadfast love endures when god did that his steadfast love endures when god does this his steadfast love endures that's what psalm 136 is about his steadfast love endures is a hard word to translate because the hebrew is simply hesed and the word describes his covenantal relational love with his people it's a psalm that celebrates he has always loved us steadfastly forever we thought he broke his love in psalm 89 but we're learning no it never ends it may be dark for a season but this is where everything's going his steadfast love endures forever 
So Psalm 137 then says, great, let's talk about that dark past in Babylon, shall we? So what does 137 say? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Okay, so that's flashing back to their darkest season. There we wept when we remembered Zion. And on the willows, there we hung up our heart, or our lyres, our harps. Basically, there's nothing to sing anymore. God is dead, and so are we. And then, of course, the Babylonians are taunting them. Sing us one of your Jerusalem songs. Like, how mean is that? It's like rubbing salt in the wound. So they have to remember everything and sing to them when they have no heart to sing. But then the psalm ends very troublingly with verse 9. Blessed, is, blessed shall be the one who takes your little ones. Babylon, he's talking to Babylon. Blessed shall, be, shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. <laughs> Can the Bible say that? Blessed is the one who dashes your baby's skulls against the rock. Ooh. Yep, that was prayed. But why? Why? We're flashing back to their darkest time when that's what they felt. But now we're seeing, okay, there's this great pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We said hallelujah. We're praising the hesed love of God. 137 is flashing back because now it's saying, wait a minute here. Our enemies will be crushed. And it will be by the serpent crusher. There's going to be one who comes to crush the head of the serpent. That's what that verse, as gruesome as it is, it's hearkening back to Genesis 3.15 again. The brutality is not meant against actual babies. It's meant against the seed of the serpent, the little followers of the little minions of the devil. And one will come to smash them forever. Who is that going to be? You should know by now, the new David. So guess what Psalm 138 is? A Psalm of David. Oh, and 139 to the choir master, a psalm of David. Oh, and 140, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Oh, and 141, a psalm of David. Oh, and 142, a mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. Oh, and 143, a psalm of David. And oh, 144, of David. And oh, 145, a song of praise of David. How much, isn't that, that's so beautifully clear, isn't it? The hope is on David, but not the early David, this comeback David, this David to come in the fifth section of God's story. So how do we respond to this great deliverer? You know by now, right? Well, how do we respond? Hallelujah. So 146 starts with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. 147 starts with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. 148 starts with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. 149 starts with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. And 150 starts with hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding of cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. There we have a double hallelujah to close the Psalter. Eleven hallelujahs in the last five chapters to fit 
the proper response of the people of God to God's answer, where is all of this going? Salter says, this is where it's going. It's going to see a new Moses leading all of God's lost children back home. It will be led or ruled then by a new David sitting on the throne this time forever. And all God's people will shout and sing hallelujah. That is where all of this is going. And brothers and sisters, that is why we need to seek the Psalms more than the news media when we're wondering where is the world going what is god's plan how do i find a pattern or a plan to put my life around how do i find some expectancy in this turbulence well you're not going to find it from them because the psalms have declared where all of this is going and it therefore says look in your despair hope here. In your doubt, put your faith and your trust here. In your lament, put your hallelujah here. By the way, there's basically two kinds of psalms, the ones of pain and the ones of praise. The majority of the ones of pain are in the first three books. The majority of the ones of pain of praise are in books four and five, because this is where everything is going so we need a new context right when when there's surprise and there's this there's a disruption in the patterns and plans that we uh, anticipate we need new context the news will give you context of the external things but the psalter will call your internal being to respond differently and it's once we get the inside responding well, we will be able to endure and weather the outside. Because we can't control that. And worrying is your trying to control it. Jesus said that in Matthew 6. You can't add one measure to your stature by worrying about things. You, in other words, you can't change the physical world through worry. But you can change how you live in the physical world and in the external plot that's thickening by getting your story together by getting the psalms inside you and getting yourself inside the psalms. See, we don't need the outside story. We need the inside story. We need the inside scoop. So we need to enter this internal story, the story that deals with the soul, that deals with the heart and its relationship to Yahweh as king over the earth. So this is how we do it. We pray our way into this story. There's no other way. You can hear me talk about it. You can review the notes that you're taking about it or go back and hear the podcast or watch YouTube or whatever. You can do all that, but you will not get inside this story until you begin to pray your way into it. See, we need a new plan. We need a plan to pray. We need new patterns. We need patterns of praise. That's what we need. When everything disrupts, when the external disruption messes up our patterns and plans, plan to pray and form patterns of praise. That will get us into the story of, yes, there's struggle. 
but there will be invitation. Yes, there's doubt, but there will be reorientation. And finally, it concludes with, hallelujah, let everything that has breath, hallelujah. Or you can despair. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to pray.